This is episode number 88 of Patrick Jones Baseball. On this episode, we have Ben Ryder, who is the senior writer for Sports Illustrated and the author of Astro Ball. Um, actually, I just got done reading Astro Ball, and I couldn't help but want to reach out to Ben to kind of get a little bit more insight um, onto the Houston Astros and their organization and just kind of what he saw going through the process and appreciate him being so willing to come on the, the, uh, the podcast and talk a little bit about it. Um, the Houston Astros are at the forefront of all the, the changes going on in baseball in the analytics and technology department. And as you well know, if you've been listening to this podcast, um, I'm at the forefront of all that in terms of you know what I teach my hitters. And that's why I decided to partner up with Blast Motion. And Blast Motion actually is... Um, has a deal with the Houston Astros and every hitter in the Houston Astros organization uses um, the blast motion sensor. So without further ado, this episode is brought to you by blast motion. Blast motion um, is a bat sensor that you attach to the end of your knob on the end of your bat and it can track how long you're on playing with the pitch for attack angle, bat speed. They even have some newer metrics out that test uh, rotational power and and um, just some other things that are really, really cool. And it's it's very cool to, to see a company um, kind of evolve over time as well as like Blast has done. So head on over to BlastMotion.com and type in code PJB25 for $25 off. And now here is Ben Ryder. All right, and we are now live with Ben Ryder, who is a senior writer for Sports Illustrated and the author of Astro Ball. Ben, thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me. So, just got done reading Astro Ball. Um, it's fantastic. It's it's a fantastic read. Um, me living in Cincinnati, I start to wonder why doesn't every organization kind of start to mimic what the Astros did? Um, why do you think that is? <laughs> well, I mean, Patrick, there were certainly on the bleeding edge as far as implementing uh, their processes, not just taking advantage of all of the analytic capabilities that they had in building those departments uh, from the get-go when Jeff Luno arrived in Houston in the end of 2011 to become the GM, but in recognizing that uh, numbers alone are no longer the way to get ahead, to differentiate yourself, there has to be something more, and kind of turning back to a factor that had been overlooked, really, in baseball in the money ball era, which was the human factor. And how do you combine your human resources and the observations and gut instincts of your scouts with all of the data you have at your disposal to get the best out of man and machine? So they were clearly early adopters. They committed to this process to a depth uh, that was frankly hard for a lot of other organizations to stomach, even if they knew how to do it as far as all of the terrible years uh, they went through. Uh, but certainly now that this process has paid serious dividends and now that they look like not just last year's champion, but a team that's going to be a force to be reckoned with for years and years to come, certainly all teams are going to try to uh, follow what they've done on some level, including the Reds. One of the really cool things I think about about you know your book Astro Ball is just it's the background of kind of each guy who, who plays a role in it and um you see, actually, I'm sure you saw this, but um, Sig, right? I'm sure he's now a free agent. Yes. Um, are yes. you Are you surprised? Um, a, a bit surprised. You know, Sig Mydell is, in some ways, you know, both the brains and the heart 
of the book. He was a former blackjack dealer who became a rocket scientist with NASA, who became a baseball data guru. Um, really, you know, in first St. Louis with Jeff Luno and then in Houston, one of the main driving forces in the process is the Astros installed. Um, and Sig, having gotten to know him over the course of the last several years, is somebody who's very excited by the building process, by turning things around, by, by putting in processes that had not been there before and finding success. And my sense of things is that, um, you know, that's what really animated him. And they'd reached the top of the mountain and that now I think he's looking for an opportunity to bring to a new organization uh, what he did in Houston, as opposed to maintaining it, which obviously has its own challenges and its own excitements, but uh, it's not necessarily what he was looking for in the long term. Although I do know that he leaves Jeff Luna in the organization with no hard feelings uh, whatsoever. They're all very appreciative of each other, obviously, and of everything they accomplished there. What what would someone like that, someone so valuable like Sig, how much do you think, like on the open market, he could command? Because I'm sure you know that. You, a lot of people don't get paid a whole lot in front offices. Everyone sees the general manager's salary and everything like that. But, I mean, for the most part, a lot of people don't get paid very much. That's right. And, I mean, one of baseball's great advantages is you can get some of the brightest minds in data analytics um, and all sorts of areas, actually, for a fraction of really their market value in another industry just because the idea of working in baseball for a lot of these people is just so exciting. Um, they're so passionate about it that they're willing to take a fraction of their market worth to be able to do it. Now, I'm sure if somebody like Sig or any number of people who do things like he does would go into any sorts of any, any number of industries, you know, finance, things like that, they'd get paid a lot more than they would in baseball. Having said that, I do think that teams do recognize the value of adding these guys. And I think that you'll see uh, their their salaries increasing. They might be the hottest type of free agents out there in an era in which teams are less enthused than in the past about spending hundreds of millions of dollars on a single free agent who might be even past his prime in many cases. Uh, this is a much uh, more modest expenditure that can have huge results. So uh, just throughout reading the book, I, I realized just how much work you know you put into to doing all the research and, and talking to people and things like that. Um, I'm kind of curious as to – so I take it – did you just – were you able to take a couple months off work and then just go down there and then just every day you're, you know, you're grinding, talking to people, you know, writing stuff down, researching? I mean just take me through like the entire process of, of writing the book. Sure. Well, as you know, Patrick, I didn't start – reporting on this story uh, after November 1st of 2017 when they won the World Series. I'd started really way back in 2014 when I wrote the initial Sports Illustrated piece back when the Astros were the worst baseball team anybody had seen in half a century. Um, the piece that ended up on the cover of Sports Illustrated with the prediction that this terrible team would be your 2017 World Series champs which was met with great skepticism and even anger at the time, but amazingly enough, turned out to be prophetic. Uh, ever since I wrote that story and started digging into the new uh, strategies that the Astros were pursuing under Jeff Luno and Sig as well, I'd kept reporting on the story. I'd followed them, uh, built relationships within the organization and with the players, 
Uh, so I had a pretty thick notebook when it came to actually came time to actually write this book, which I sold about two weeks after the World Series to my publisher, uh, which is Crown. Um, but yeah, it was uh, it was a pretty crazy winter as far as rounding out and expanding upon my reporting significantly, probably through the end of 2017, and then just sitting down at my computer and writing the thing while continuing to report and talk to players and things like that over the next two to three months. Now, it's the first book I've written, so you know I didn't necessarily know any better <laughs> than that most of the time you don't write a book in about uh, 10 weeks. But I looked at it really as a series of magazine articles. I'm obviously a magazine writer, so I figured I had about 10 chapters. If I could finish one chapter each and every week uh, at the end of it, I'd have a book. And, you know, I'm proud of the fact that I was more or less able to stick to that schedule and end up with Astro Bowl. Well, I think what pe some people may forget is, is how bad the Astros were. And so for you to come out and predict that they would win the World Series in 2017, in the year 2014, I mean, you have to feel like a genius. <laughs> I'm certainly not a, not a genius. Um, and I have to give, obviously, all credit to the Astros themselves, the front office and the players who actually accomplished this thing. If I did anything, I think it was that I entered into that story with an open mind. I mean, it's a bit hard to remember, especially if you weren't living through it in Houston, as you say, just how miserable the Astros were back in 2014. They're a laughing stock, not just of baseball, but of all sports. They'd lost 106 games, then 107 games, then 111 games. Uh, they were being made fun of by Alex Trebek on Jeopardy. Their <laughs> local TV ratings were 0, 0.0, which Jeez. meant that Nielsen couldn't verify that a single local viewer had actually tuned into some of these games. That's how miserable they were. And they were obviously getting a ton of uh, hate thrown at them from around the country for being so bad and from the outside for seem seeming as if they weren't even really trying to win at the time. Uh, all I did when I was negotiating access with the Astros, which is a process in itself to get this sort of access into their draft rooms and into their front office and really have them open up to a publication in a, way, in a way that teams generally really do not want to do, all I promised was that I would come in with an open mind. You know, I didn't know if it was going to be a positive article. I didn't know if it was going to be a negative article. Certainly, there was not supposed to be any sort of prediction attached to it. I just said, I'd be open-minded. Show me what you guys are doing. What is the plan here? Is there a plan here? And it was really after spending those days embedded with the Astros that I realized that, at least to me, it seemed like they were doing something new and something logical. You know, you remember the debate at the time was teams were asking themselves, are we a traditional organization? Do we still believe in uh, all of the ways that baseball teams have traditionally made themselves good through scouting? and things like that? Or are we a modern organization? Do we buy into analytics and algorithms? Um, are we going that way? That was kind of the debate after Moneyball. The Astros answer to that question was we're both. And this is how we're using all of these sources of information to guide our process. And that fundamentally was something I hadn't heard before. Uh, that was really the guiding philosophy that I thought made so much sense and represented an evolution from Moneyball and everything jumped off from there. Well, and the, and the Astros are starting to have some effect on some other organizations. I mean, I know Jeff came from St. Louis, but I'm, I don't know if you saw that St. Louis's new hitting coach um, is from the Astros, and he never played uh, minor league baseball or in the big leagues, which is unheard of for a hitting coach. 
You're right. Yeah, Jeff Albert um, from the Astros has gone to St. Louis. And another team this year that surprised people by how good it was also had a heavy Astros fingerprints on it, and that's the Brewers. Of course, David Stern, their general manager, uh, came from Houston. He, he was Jeff Luno's assistant general manager before he got the job in Milwaukee. So you're right. We're seeing people who've kind of come up in this organization fan out around baseball and certainly in the case of the Brewers finding success. Is there an organization out there right now that, you know, isn't very good or, but you've, have you heard anything maybe like um, not quite to the Astros level, but maybe that they could be making some changes where in the next four to five years they could be competitive. You know, a team that I'm really intrigued by and seems as if it might be following the same sort of models is the St. Sorry, the San Diego Padres, actually. When you look at where the Astros were, essentially when I wrote that initial Sports Illustrated piece, the Padres are pursuing a lot of the same strategies. They have the consensus best minor league system right now, uh, top to bottom. Maybe the Braves are in that conversation as well. But they've really spent a few years building from the ground up under A.J. Preller, uh, doing a lot of similar things that the Astros are doing. But look, I mean, frankly, it's going to be harder for any team to follow this model than it was when the Astros did it. Because when they were doing it, they were more or less alone. You know, a lot of teams had incorporated certain aspects of it, the Cubs in particular. But uh, the Astros were the ones who were making these sorts of investments in young players and technology and data and process. Uh, now, you know, you've got a lot of copycats. And when, you know, 10 or a dozen teams are trying to do the exact same thing at the exact same time, it's a lot harder to eke out a marginal advantage as the Astros did. And one of those teams is is the Dodgers, who are, who are pretty heavy in the analytics department. Um, Manny Machado, he uh, do you think he cost himself some money in the playoffs? Uh, I'm not sure. Look, the thing about it is, Baseball is a closed market. It's a limited market. So really, already, when you're talking about the type of contract that Manny Machado, who is one of the best young free agents ever to come into the market, in fact, he's one of the best 26 and under players of all time, at least performance-wise, when you look at things like win above replacement and things like that, there's only, I don't know, 10 teams who could even begin to play for him, just based on the contract that you might expect to receive. And then you start ticking them off the list, right? The Dodgers are unlikely to, to be in the market for him with Corey Seager coming back. The Red Sox with that loaded offense would be a usual suspect. They're probably not going to be in there. So the question is, when you already have a small group of potential bidders, did some of his behavior, rightly or wrongly, maybe turn some of those teams off to him and impact his own market? I think it's certainly possible. I do think there's going to be, really all you need is two teams to bid him up. I think you're going to end up with that just because he is such a talented player, despite the fact that he can be a bit of a pest and doesn't hustle all the time. Um, I do this annual ranking of free agents for Sports Illustrated called the Writer 50, in which I rank the top 50 available each market. He, um, each winter, I should say, he's number one on my list. I think a team like the Phillies, which has a $5 billion TV contract, didn't spend very much on their payroll last year and is obviously a rising force in the NL East, uh, probably makes a lot of sense for somebody like Manny Machado. So you think that Manny Machado is worth more than Bryce Harper? Um, I think they're worth about the same. Look, okay. I really I have Harper as number two on my list. 
Um, it's really a one and a one a type of scenario. I have Harper number two simply because, you know, I talked to a number of executives around the league and really the way you separate them is defense. You know, Machado at third base is elite. He can play shortstop. Um, he enhances his value in that way. Most people I talked to said, look, the tiebreaker is essentially a uh, position. So that's why Harp Machado is number one on my list. But I think as far as the actual contractual terms, they'll likely end up looking pretty similar. Would it make more sense for a team to maybe pay a little bit extra, but only get, but only give them five or six years? I mean, these all these long contracts just are they're, they're so absurd. And they don't really make make sense to me. They don't really end, they never end up well. For Machado in particular, yeah, I would say so. Yeah, um, it might, and I and it might because. The one thing that other that some executives have mentioned to me is just based on what we know about Machado, how he doesn't want to run hard all the time, all that, is you wonder, the unknown is like, what will his motivation be to continue to work, to continue to keep himself in shape um, if he has, you know, a 10-year deal ahead of him with no incentive of another contract? So in his case, maybe if you give him a high average annual value contract, but on a shorter term, if he'll accept it, that might make some sense. But look, we have to realize that these guys don't come along this way. Like age is not that much of a concern with Manny Machado and Bryce Harper. They both just turned 26 years old. These are not the typical 30, 31 year old free agents. If I sign him to a long deal, there's no way he's going to be good at the end of it. I mean, you give these guys seven years, they're only 33 by the time the deal elapses. So these are not the type of players that you usually think about when you analyze the free agent market in that way. Ben being a really, really awesome guest. Um, Make sure to go check out and go buy Astro Ball. I just got done reading it myself, and it's uh, I, what I like about. I think what I like about this book more than anything is is yeah, I'm a baseball fan, and um, a lot of the read or listeners are on here as well. But you can kind of you know take like the basic like knowledge and and principles from this book and kind of apply it to whatever business you're really in. Like it's just it's thinking outside, right? It's going through like the data and the numbers and things like that, and it's just I don't know. I I really like it. It's pretty inspiring. I'm glad. I'm really thrilled to hear you say that because that was certainly my goal. You know, it's not an overly technical book as far as math and algorithms or all of that. It's really a deeply inside look at the concepts that a modern organiza- modern organization has used to find success. And this is in a world in which all we hear about all the time is big data, big data. Data is going to solve all our problems. Algorithms are the way to go. Well, we've seen time and again that you need more than that to find success. Algorithms can lead you astray into making bad decisions almost as often as they're useful. You know, I quote a a philosopher in the book who says, all models are wrong, but some are useful. And this book is really about how an organization figured out which models were useful and how to best incorporate them into their decision-making process. And that's something that people in business can do, people in government, certainly people in criminal justice, people in education, or even people in their day-to-day lives. And they're trying to figure out how to use all these modern tools we have in our, at our disposal in the best way. Awesome. Ben, thanks again for coming on. My pleasure, Patrick.